Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me here on the Biography Channel of the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. I'm your host, Dan Hill, and I'm joined today by Dave Simonara. He is the author of Footsteps of Federer, A Fan's Pilgrimage Across Seven Swiss Cantons in Ten Acts. The publisher is Post Hill Press. Dave is a writer, former diplomat, passionate tennis fan who lives in St. Petersburg, Florida, His writings have appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, BBC, the Washington Post, and dozens of other publications. He is the author of two international bestsellers, Bed, Breakfast, and Drunken Threats, Dispatches from the Margins of Europe, as well as Breakfast with Polygamists, Dispatches from the Margins of the Americas. Today's episode is entitled, How Switzerland Made Roger Federer Who He Is. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you very much for that great introduction, Dan. Pleased to be here. Wonderful. So give us a brief overview of this book. Right. Um, You know, I've been a tennis player since I was a little boy, and um, I learned the game from my father, and he always used to tell me, the great thing about tennis is tennis is a sport for a lifetime. You can play it until you're old and gray. And I sort of always assumed that to be the case, and I really took that for granted. But then when I got into my 30s, I got an autoimmune disease, MS, then later, I had a knee injury that took me out of tennis. And then in 2017, I had the worst of all, a rare skin disease, which really attacked my legs and my feet and some other areas, taking me out of tennis once again. So I've made a bunch of different tennis comebacks, but 2017 and 2018 were absolutely awful years for me. So when I started to feel a little bit better in 2019 and started to dream about playing tennis again, I thought, you know what, I really owe it to myself to have a little treat here, to really treat myself to something special and not just come back to tennis and start playing tennis again on an ordinary court here in Florida, but to do something a little more special and maybe go to Switzerland and travel in the footsteps of my tennis hero, Roger Federer, and make my comeback on courts where he's played. So that was the idea for the book. I think that's that's cool. So I've got to ask you, going back to your bio for a moment. So you've got two books about the margins of first Europe and then the mm-hmm. Americas. Yeah. And then lo and behold, you do a book about essentially being on center court as opposed to the margins mm-hmm. uh, following yeah. Roger Federer. So uh, I'm curious about those two books in this book. And I'm also curious where you were a diplomat. Sure. Well, so I'll take the last part of your question first. I served in uh, Skopje, Macedonia, in um, uh, Trinidad and Tobago. And then also in Budapest, Hungary. And I also worked in the Bureau of African Affairs as the desk officer for Chad in the Central African Republic. So that was uh, my diplomatic career in a nutshell. Uh, regarding the two books, yeah, I am drawn to the margins. Both of those uh, of those books are tend to be about more offbeat places, whereas Switzerland certainly would not qualify for that. Although I will tell you, though, every country in the world has places that are on the margins. And in Switzerland, um, this was the great thing about my journey is that you, it actually took me well off the beaten track. And when you look into places like, for example, uh, where Roger's you know, ancestral um, background comes from and his father's side, of course, his mother is South African, but his father's side, these are places that are far off the tourist trail, even though Switzerland's a popular country. Um, the places, some of the places where Roger lives right now are 
quite off the beaten track, believe it or not. And I would just clarify too, one thing from the intro is that, um, you know, this didn't start out as an idea for a book. It actually just started out as an idea for a trip. This is just something that I wanted <laughs> to do. This sure. is just something that I wanted to do. And in fact, I had to try to transform it into a business trip because it's too difficult, you know, as a writer to tell my wife, um, and we have two kids, by the way, age 13 and 11 to say, Hey, honey, I'm going to go to Switzerland for two weeks and uh, just enjoy myself and not make any money, but spend a whole <laughs> bunch of money. So really, I thought I've got to try to write about this in some way in order to finance this trip so I can legitimately say this was a business trip and not just a junket for me to play some tennis and, and uh, follow in Roger's footsteps. So I had to pitch the story to editors and actually earn my keep so that someone would actually pay me to go to Switzerland. So that's how it was born. And then I realized that once I got there that, wow, I have a lot more material here than just an article. Then I realized maybe a few days into my trip that this is great. I want to write a, a whole book about this because I was just learning so much about Roger and about Switzerland that I wanted to really turn it into a book. Yeah, no, I had originally read the article and I think it was Tennis Magazine and uh, actually being a tennis fan myself was intrigued and was so glad that you're willing to be on the show. So with Roger, you said that the things that make him your hero, there was a, several qualities, sportsmanship, uh, sense of humor, but also vulnerability. And I want to talk about vulnerability because there's some pretty amazing stuff about how Roger responded to losses, particularly early in his career. Can you tell us a bit more? Oh, that's right. So, you know, one of the really interesting people that I met on my travels, her name is Madeline Barlocker. And um, it's really interesting, too. I think that Madeline Barlocker was one of Roger's first coaches at uh, tennis club Old Boys, which Old Boys was the venerable tennis club in Basel, where Roger really learned to play as a junior before he was identified as a promising youth and was sent to their national training center. And I had uh, lunch with Madeline and I'd, I'd, I'd interview her many years before, maybe 10 years before on the phone. It was my first time meeting her. So she was able to walk me over to the court, which is now named Roger Federer Court. But of course, it wasn't when Roger was a boy and say, you know, she remembers just like it was yesterday when Roger would sit there after a loss and he would be crying on the court a half hour or an hour later. She said all the other boys would be inside having their sandwiches, having lunch, whatever, carrying on with their day, Roger would still be crying on the court. And she said, you know, back then Roger would cry when he lost, but now he cries when he wins. And uh, luckily for me, three or four days after, after she said that, and I met her, um, Roger did win. He won his 10th uh, Swiss indoors title in Basel. I was there to see that. And he did cry. He broke, it broke him up. Of course, I also remember him, I believe, crying. I don't remember which match exactly, but I think it was one of the times where he just couldn't quite get over the, the hump with Nadal, and he said, it's it's killing me. It's killing me. <laughs> yeah, not to win these. Classic um, Federer moment. And Federer, you know, as great as he is over the years, it's some of his best moments have really been in defeat, where you grow to love the guy and respect him even more, even though he didn't win the match. Sure. Well, the, the other emotion I thought was interesting when I'm cycling back and thinking about Roger's earlier career was he famously had problems with anger. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, I, he estimates by his own reckoning that he smashed uh, about 50 rackets <laughs> growing up, but it wasn't something that, you know, his parents were going to tolerate forever. And I think it was really just sort of the maturation process, very similar to the one that Bjorn Borg went through. Um, decades before where I think that something just clicked, you know, maybe a year or two after being on the tour. And uh, he now will throw a racket maybe once every two or three years, I would guesstimate. But uh, yeah, he certainly was a, a, a bad loser as a boy. There's no doubt about that. 
Yeah, well, Woody Hayes, the former Ohio State football coach, once said, show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. So <laughs> I, I, I guess uh, Roger has been a winner, quite obviously, but when he was losing, um, you know, he had his difficulties. Uh, in fact, I, I went back and looked at 19, I think it was 1998, he had only had two wins on the on the circuit and three losses. And that's the same year, as you mentioned in the book, he got fined, which is, seems incredible now. He got fined for lack of effort on the court. He did. Uh, this was in an obscure tournament in eastern Switzerland. I think he got fined the equivalent of, what was it, $87 or I don't know, something along those lines. But it was about the same amount of money that he won in prize money for a first-round <laughs> loss. But thinking about that now, it seems like ancient history, doesn't it? Because you certainly has never done that again. I think that was, again, a lot of times in life we learn we learn lessons from our low mo- low moments. And I think that was probably one of the low moments of his early career. Yeah, certainly. I'm sure you look at it the same way. Although you, you do mention also that when he was age 10, he was double bageled by a 12-year-old. So I'm sure that's not one of his highlights either. No. He, um, yeah. he, he, funny being Roger, that, that was Reto Schmeidley, whom I have interviewed also. And I tried to meet in person on this trip, but unfortunately, Reto didn't make time for me. But Reto Schmeidley is a police officer in Switzerland, and he does hold the distinction of double bageling Roger. But the funny thing is, Roger was asked about it once. And in his typically optimistic and sunny, upbeat manner, he said that he didn't remember playing that bad. He said he actually thought he played pretty well, well which I think is really funny. <laughs> well, obviously not well enough. Um, so let's talk about uh, the, the title for this episode, which is basically you know how Switzerland is instrumental to uh, who Roger is, how it made Roger Federer who he is, as we said. So what in terms of skills, temperament, approach to his career, his lifestyle, how does Switzerland inform who Roger is? First, I want to answer that question about Roger the person, and then we'll talk about his tennis career. But as a person, sure. Roger, I think that some of his best qualities are, are I can say because he's Swiss, but are they're really inextricably linked to his character where he's grown up. And I'll tell you why. Because Switzerland is not a celebrity culture like we have here in the U.S., they have no tradition of revering heroes there. There's no hero worship. People are not into getting autographs. I saw very few people wearing Roger Federer hats, even at his tournaments or Roger Federer shirts and so on. They do not have a, a culture of worshiping people. And so that means that Roger gets pretty much treated like in an ordinary way. And I'll give you two examples I discovered on my trip about that. For one thing, um, his next door neighbor sued him. Um, in the home, main home that he owns in Valbella because he erected a playground for his children that partially obstructed the neighbor's view. And would you know that they went to court and the judge ruled against Roger? <laughs> I'll give you one other example. <laughs> I, found, I found a house that Roger, I thought, had purchased. And in fact, he did purchase it. But his plan was to knock this house down and to build a tennis court next to it. And now his neighbors, his former neighbors, I should say, or would-be neighbors across the street that I met, told me that actually that Roger bought the house and he ended up selling it very quickly. And I said, well, why is that? He never moved in. They said, because the local uh, council denied his permit request to build a tennis court. (laughs) I said, you're kidding me. Somebody in Roger Federer, somebody in Switzerland told Roger Federer he cannot build a tennis court. And they said, this is Switzerland where the rules apply to everyone. So this is a long way of answering the question is that part of his humility, and I think what makes him a good guy that he doesn't act like a big shot, is the fact that he's Swiss. And in Switzerland, there's a big, you know, the national ethos is equality. And, you know, he and others have said before that, you know, in Switzerland, if you're down, uh, people will help you up. But if you're up, they might knock you down a little bit to make sure your head doesn't get too big. So I think as a person, 
the fact that he's grown up in Switzerland, a place where everyone is equal, has made him kind of a, a more humble guy to a degree. From a tennis perspective, I was able to see why he was successful as well, too, because I traveled to see where he played as a young boy. And I could see that he had this great club that was very close to his house that he could ride his bike back and forth from. I saw, I went to the neighborhood where Roger grew up. I saw his townhouse where he grew up. It was a very middle-class environment. In case anyone's wondering, I learned that also. Roger was definitely not affluent. He grew up in an attached townhouse, but it was about a five-minute bike ride away from a wonderful tennis club where there were some other good players, including Marco Cudinelli, who played at the same court. And those of you who remember, Marco was, you know, a top 50 type player at one point in his career. So he had good competition, but then he was also identified when he was about 13 years old as a promising youth. And he was offered this opportunity to move to um, the Swiss, I'm sorry, the French speaking part of Switzerland. And he didn't speak French at the time, but he leaped at that opportunity and was able to play with even better players. So the Swiss system, I think, really worked in his favor. And he had parents who, who were supportive, but who were not pushy. And I think all of that combined to pre present sort of an ideal way to grow up and to evolve into the great tennis player that he became. Well, speaking of the humble, a couple of details in your book that uh, caught my eye. One is he, he he doesn't have a driver. He tends to drive himself from place yes. to place. And the other one is he, he calls the tennis club uh, if he wants to arrange a, a session and he does it himself. He doesn't have a personal assistant who does it. Correct. I mean, he may have, I mean, he certainly has uh, people who help him do things. I'm not saying his manage, sure. manager sure. or things don't do them anything at all. But I did, uh, you know, go to tennis clubs where, where they told me, oh, yeah, Roger just sends me a text when he wants a court. And the other thing, too, is that he doesn't say, you know, I'd like the courts next to me to be empty so that I have privacy. They told me, too, that, oh, no, he, he just takes one court. He, he doesn't ask us to close the place down or, you know, give him a whole section so that people's balls aren't straying onto his court and such. So. Um, yeah, that's the sort of person he is. Okay. Well, I'm going to raise one thing regarding Switzerland and Roger that would seem, at least on the surface, to be an anomaly to me. When I think of Switzerland, I always think of them being very meticulous and also very punctual, uh, so much so that when I was a student at Oxford between terms, I was in Zurich, and apparently they had closed the youth center because gasp, there had been some drug dealing there, and the students were punctually protesting at noon every Saturday about the closing of the youth center. So I bring that up because in the book, at least on two occasions, I believe, uh, Roger kept the reporters waiting after the match, what seemed to me like a, a long time. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think people, I wanted to give people sort of the inside tennis, inside baseball of what it is like, because I did have a, a press pass to cover the Swiss indoors. I was there, um, I was writing this article for the New York Times, so I did have a press pass. And so I had that experience of being down in the bowels, down in the trenches of the arena waiting for Roger after his matches. And uh, yeah, there was uh, one occasion where he kept us waiting for more than two hours for, for the interview. But I think, um, you know, as far as that goes, I think Roger just has the ability to, um, he's not the kind of person who can say no easily to people. So what I could see huh. happening is that when he's back home in Basel in his hometown tournament after a match, he probably greets every single person um, who he ever went to school with, who he played soccer with, who he played tennis with, friends of his parents. I, there was probably a two-hour-long um, line of people just waiting to get, you know, to say hello to him and to catch up with him and such like that. So I sort of wrote it off to to him not being able to say no to all the different people, all the obligations he has when he comes back to Basel. 
Okay, so it's much more of a hometown phenomenon. Because I was like, boy, that's a long time to take a shower. Yeah, no, it is. But no, I think he is pretty functional. I could tell you that I had actually had a Zoom interview with Roger on Friday. I was fortunate enough to be able to do a one-on-one interview with him on Zoom on Friday. And it was supposed to be at 11 a.m. my time. He's at home in Switzerland. And it started exactly at 11 a.m. So I think that perhaps the waiting that we experienced in Basel was an outlier. I don't know. Okay, fair enough. So um, I have to ask, since you, you mentioned at one point fairly early in the book that you had a few other favorites in men's tennis historically, and those were Borg and McEnroe and Becker. Mm-hmm. So one part of my question is I'm, I'm intrigued for you to say what it is about them that you also enjoy and maybe how it links up to Federer. But then, of course, there's quite a few people who who aren't on that list. Uh, I could say Connors. I could say Lindell, Sampras, Agassi, Rafa Nadal. Uh, we could go on and on. So who's who's in the inside track with you and why? And, and why are some of these other prominent players not among your favorites? Yeah, well, you can only root for a certain number of players. I mean, I respect true, all true. those guys. Some of them I just don't, don't. Some of them I actively dislike and, and others I'm just neutral on. Uh, but I would say it started with Borg just because, you know, when I started liking Borg when I was very young, I guess I would say six, seven years old in that range. And I don't I think it was just the the appeal of him as a really cool guy who, you know, even from a fashion sense, even as like a six, seven, eight year old boy, the long blonde locks, the cool multicolored feel of headbands, the the donate racket, the donate racket. I, that's what I had to have. That was my first tennis racket. I wanted to have that cool. Um, black Doné racket with the multicolored sort of stripes at the top of it. I, I think, um, and it was the fact that he was winning Wimbledon every year, which was my favorite tournament, which was the tournament that we watched in our household. Um, so late 70s, it started with Borg because he was the man. Um, and I don't think it was anything specific about the way that he played, but just the fact that he was a winner. And I just, the way that he would drop to his knees um, when he'd win sure. the final point yes. at Wimbledon and everything about him I liked. Um, McEnroe came next because actually, I liked his his fiery personality. I loved him sparring with chair umpires, but I also just I, I admired his serve and volley game and his angles and his drop volleys and even his peculiar service motion, which I tried to imitate very unsuccessfully. Um, so then it came to McEnroe, and and then I like I like Becker because again Wimbledon's always been my favorite tournament. It's been the most special place and. The guy won Wimbledon when he was 17 years old, and he was only a few years older than me. I think I was like 13 at the time or something like that. So it was like, oh, my God, someone who's like almost a peer of mine has just won Wimbledon. And doing so in such an incredibly brash fashion, the way he used to dive across the courts and tumble yep. and so on. And I just I liked his his sort of reckless, almost reckless style of play. Um, you know, you mentioned Lendl and Connors. I mean, those were guys who were standing in the way of the players that I wanted to win, Borg and McEnroe. So naturally, I just, naturally, I just dislike those guys. Awesome players, but they were they were the rivals of the of my guys. Same thing with Djokovic right now. I mean, I have a tremendous amount of respect and admiration for Djokovic, but he beats my favorite player far too often. And therefore, I do not like Novak Djokovic, and I root against him, even though I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. That's just the way it goes in tennis, isn't it? Sure. So those those are the foils for your for your heroes. Right. So so let's stay with some of the contemporary players as you yeah. you may know. Um not only have I been on tennis channel with Mary Carrillo, but I was on because I'm an expert in facial expressions and I have watched all these players endlessly on tennis channel, but also press conferences and elsewhere. There are certain emotions that actually the some of the leading male players have gone to. 
Um, and I don't know if you're going to have a comment on these in a moment, but you mentioned the, the sunny, optimistic uh, kind of mentality of, of Federer. And in fact, of these four players that I'm talking about, Federer, Nadal, Jokovic, and Andy Murray, who I mm-hmm. think is pretty much in the twilight of his career at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, Federer of the four would be most notable for having uh, more happiness displays. Uh, particularly during the match, really what I'm focusing on is during the match. For Nadal and Jokovic and Murray, uh, any guesses as to what emotion typifies them more than their their competitors? Uh, you, when you say what emotion typifies yeah, them, I'll give, what you, I'll you give you options because from facial coding, there are, there are seven emotions one can capture. So that does include happiness, and then it's surprise and anger fear, sadness, disgust, and contempt. So I'm putting you on the spot, and mm-hmm. uh, but I'm just curious if you have any premonitions about them, and then I'll, I'll, I'll share, if you don't mind, what I see there, and then I wanted to go on to one other detail about Federer and his emoting on court. Well, with Nadal, it's the intensity and the sweat and the concentration, the, tremen- <laughs> the tremendous intensity. Um, Djokovic has that sort of adversarial quality to him, when he's on the court, it's him against the world. I don't know, you know, of the emotions that you, again, of the emotions you're saying, those aren't the ones if they're seven or six of the primary one, seven, I, those aren't the ones that really sort of leap to mind first for these characters. Um, and then Andy Murray, <laughs> Murray's on court persona. It's like, you just, yeah, I mean, he's gotten a little milder in his older age, but boy, as a young man, I've seen Murray play in person many times. And it's sort of like, please get this guy a therapist. Um, Murray is, he's a very unhappy person on court generally. I mean, there's this, uh, you know, he, he, he's, he's angry. He's the scowl. For him, I would say anger for sure. And, and you're absolutely correct about Murray. I used to joke that it was the Scottish inquisition that he was imposing on himself or maybe his <laughs> rival was imposing yeah. on him. But with Nadal, it's actually discussed historically. Oh, really? Uh, his his uh, upper lip curls, his nose wrinkles, to me, it's almost as if he is disgusted by any any lapses, any moments of mediocrity in his play. Mm. And and I can tell you that Serena Williams is the same way. And actually, I've gone through and facially coded probably 20 to 30 male and female stars, going all the way back to Billie Jean King and others. Mm-hmm. And disgust is the single most common emotion in the great players <laughs> that distinguishes them as if they yeah. really cannot stand being down in the mud with anyone else. Jokovic, it's actually surprise. If you think about his service returns, but lots of other occasions, his eyes are so wide open. True. He is he is taking in information. He is so prepared for the moment. And I, I mentioned that because the thing that, you know, Roger is a wonderful player and I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to support Roger and always have been. Uh, but I just the day before this interview said, I'm going to check out the ETP tour stats. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious. Roger is number two under pressure behind Jokovic. He's number five for serving. And then this is the one that I was looking for, and it proved to be not that he's way down there, but he's not top five. He is 16 uh, in terms of service return percentages. And the for his one. Career. T- yeah, yeah, I believe okay. it's career stats. Okay. Um, you're not just recently, we've had some injuries and so forth. Um, and that's the one thing I've always noticed about uh, Federer. If he ever shows fear on the court, it tends to be when he's getting ready to receive serve. Mm. Uh, the, the mouth pulls a bit wide and then Egad's sort of expression. Although I must say that with Nadal, 
I've seen a little bit more fear entering his face in the last year or two. Uh, I wonder if he knows that some of these other players are definitely breathing down his neck at this point. Oh, I know. That's interesting. That's very interesting. I'll be curious. Will you be watching Roger carefully as he comes back in, uh, in Geneva and Paris? I'd like to know what his expressions tell uh, you. A- absolutely. I, I okay. remember, for instance, when McEnroe came back and he was playing Becker up in, I believe, Toronto, and he won the coin toss and he gave Becker the serve. Mm-hmm. No, no. Becker won the coin toss and gave the serve to McEnroe in a sign of disrespect. And, mm-hmm. and McEnroe was flabbergasted. It actually had, I believe, two match points and lost the match. I, that's interesting. I, I know in Brad Gilbert's book, Winning Ugly, he actually suggests that as a tactic to, to let the other guy serve first. Well, in that case, it definitely got McEnroe's attention because he, <laughs> yeah. he, 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 he looks stunned for a moment, uh, quite honestly. I actually do that quite frequently, to be honest with you, let the other guy serve first. No, I actually have done that because historically I've not been the world's greatest server. So I was happy to think of my service return as the thing I had to win. Me too. And, and a lot of times guys are not ready in the beginning of a match. They're, they're still a little bit, yeah, they're not they're, quite warmed up. If you can get an early service break, it's a nice way to start the match. Yeah. So I had two last questions here before we run out of time. Uh, one is about Murka, uh, mm-hmm. his wife, who you have a wonderful story about how she got into tennis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mirka was, um, so she's, uh, she was born in a place called Kreuzlingen, which is on Lake Constance in the northeast part of Switzerland. But um, she's of Slovak heritage, and um, she was at a tennis tournament in um, Martina Navratilova. She met Martina Navratilova. I forget exactly how old she was, but uh, Martina identified her. She thought that she had a good body for a tennis player. At the time, uh, Mirka was, I believe, just involved in gymnastics, didn't play any tennis. And um, they met and they exchanged, I guess, contact information and such. And wouldn't you know it, Martina was kind enough to send uh, Mirka a tennis racket or some tennis rackets when she came back to Switzerland. And she took up the sport and she ended up several years later, she she became a pro, but she met Roger for the first time at the Swiss House of Tennis, um, the National Training Center. They were both uh, living and playing there. That's where they met. She's three years older than he is, um, but she is... um, you know, obviously been incredibly instrumental in his success. And uh, it's an interesting place to visit this Swiss house of tennis. I went there, I describe it in the book, but they've got a very nice restaurant and they've got an incredible number of courts. It's open to the public and they've got, um, you can go there, you can have a King Roger burger if you're a Federer fan, or you can have a stand the man, <laughs> a, stand, a stand the man burger if you're a Stan Wawrinka fan, which I noted was the stand burger is actually one franc cheaper than the Federer burger, which I thought was quite telling. No disrespect to Stan Wawrinka, but I thought that was kind of interesting. But uh, yeah, you can you can see the place where they uh, where they met, and I also in my travels went to the place where Roger Roger and Mirka uh, got married, which is also just outside of Basel. This is also a very interesting place. So if you're interested in not just Roger but also his relationship with his wife, um, yeah, you can travel in in their footsteps in Switzerland too, which is very interesting. So one last question, which is off base. How is it that the world's biggest art fair is in Basel? That's a very good question. I, I, unfortunately, I have to be honest, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> but um, I will say that Basel is, I think, a very underrated city. This is, of course, where Roger grew up. He grew up in a town called Munchenstein, which is a suburb of, of Basel. But Basel is a, is a beautiful um, city in Switzerland. It's right on the Rhine River, and it's right where the confluence of uh, Switzerland meets France and Germany. So in 10 minutes, you can be in one country and another 10 minutes you're in another country and it's just it's a beautiful place to visit and there's a good the swiss indoors is a wonderful tournament too so if you want to time your visit to switzerland make a feel better pilgrimage like me 
um, October is a good time to do that because that's when the tournament is mid October. Yeah, no, October is actually a lovely time to travel. And I admit that I've, I've been to a lot of places, even Macedonia, but I have not been to Basel yet. And uh, thanks to your book, that that might be on the future itinerary. So I want to thank you, Dave, for having been on the show today. Uh, this is the New Books Network's biography channel. My guest, Dave Simonara, his book, Footsteps of Fetter, A Fan's Pilgrimage Across Seven Swiss Cantons in Ten Acts. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can check out other episodes by visiting my company's website at the obligatory three W's, sensorylogic.com, or go to the Net New Books Network's website. Um, finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. In light of today's topic, I came across this quote from the sports writer George Bessey talking about Federer, he said, in this age of nuclear equipment and supersized players, Federer plays with the deafness of long-ago men of modest size and long white slacks, rolled-up shirt sleeves, and wooden rackets. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.